This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival. I'm Claire Armistead. I'm Head of Books at The Guardian and Observer. Um, now, Jane was saying, as the first thing she said when, when we arrived, was, I don't suppose anybody will come. <laughs> so, uh, she was in for a pleasant surprise. Um, uh, Jane Gardam is, has been one of my favourite novelists for a very long time. In fact, one of her earlier novels, Crusoe's Daughter, was I tried to argue for it to, to have been the book that should have won the Booker Prize, but never would, partly because it's so mischievous about prizes. And one of the great things about Jane is her, the sense of mischief in her books. But we're now here to talk. She, she's, she's, won the, she's the only writer, I think, to have won the, cost, the Whitbread Prize twice, yeah. aren't you? Um, so... You don't, you don't always so. lock don't. yourself out of winning prizes. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here now to talk about the culmination of this great trilogy, and in particular um, about Last Friends. Um, and you're going to read, to start by reading. Oh, yes, bit. I'll start by right? reading, if that's yeah? a good idea. And then, yes. yes, all right. Mm. Um, last Friends. Uh, yes. Last Friends is about uh, the minor characters of the three books I've written. But not because I intentionally did that, but because I became more and more interested in the idea of, the, of minor characters. And I think that if they're not right, nothing's right. The background characters are with us always, I think. I mean, we all know that there is someone in our background from the beginning, probably from school, um, who's always sort of there and uh, the phone will ring and hello and you say oh well, that woman again and then <laughs> in fact I've heard it said about me on the phone <laughs> I've heard some of my goddaughter say uh, to her, call to her mother it's Auntie Jean again <laughs> you know anyway we all have them and they go on and they go on and they go on and in fact why do they go on there is a reason and I've discovered in the old age probably the reason is that everyone is as important as everybody else and as interesting as everybody else whatever it may be maybe rather hard work to find that that is true uh, can you hear me yes. ah. so um, although this really was about the third of, a, of three people it was to be about the lover We've done the husband and the wife, and now this to be about the lover. In fact, I was not at all at ease about doing a whole book about this man, veneering. And slowly, a very dreadful creature called Fiscal Smith uh, began to take charge, in a way. I mean, he never became more than a background character. He always thought he was something. But um, in the end, I found he and a... A woman who's a very silly woman, you know, called Dulcie. Um, she is a survivor too, and I found that it was very pleasant, pleasing, and um, uh, and comforting in a way to uh, have them as the last friends of this group of expatriates who'd been a lot in the Far East and who'd then settled in England and had made the mistake of settling somewhere where there was absolutely nothing to do. And um, in the end, well, you read the end. I'm not going to read you the end. Um, but I will read you a terrible moment in the lives of Dulcie and Fiscal Smith. 
when uh, they go to a memorial service. Actually, I've done this memorial service three times in the other books. I'm very tired of it. But they, uh, Fiscal Smith, of course, is there. And, of course, he says, could I just sort of come on home with you, Dulcie? I mean, I could even stay the night. Or I could stay a week or two. And, of course, at the end of a memorial service, you say, yes, yes. And so um, he comes home with her. And uh, the next morning, of course, she can hardly remember. She's very old. She can hardly remember what was going on the night before. And she thinks, um, oh, yes. She says, is it today? It's the memorial. Oh, no, we did that. That was yesterday. Yes. Uh, and oh, my goodness, yes. Um, he's here. I better get him a cup of tea. How ridiculous this tradition is about. I think I brought the wrong book. No, I haven't. Um, uh, yes. Page something or other. Um, she's thinking crossly about him. And she goes with her the early morning tea to his bedroom. The bed was tidily turned back. Pale pink and white winsiette pajamas folded on the pillow. So he'd brought his night things. <laughs> he'd intended to stay from the start, the old chancer. Except that he wasn't there. She sat down on the bed and she thought. She thought. Slippers. It's time I had some new slippers. Peace and quiet is what I want. And there was the most unholy crash from below stairs. And she shrieked. And she remembered she was not alone. She couldn't actually remember the end of yesterday, any yesterday. The evening before had nowadays usually slipped away by morning. King Lear, poor man. <laughs> but last night, hadn't there been something rather sensational, rather horrible? She looked at her feet. Yes, it was time for new slippers. And then she saw... She saw him out of the window, walking up the hill in the rain, in the early morning. And he called out, all well, all's well. What, she said. Phil's nice old place. He, uh, the, someone said it had burnt down. No, it hadn't. No, it hadn't. Um, How arrogant you are, Fiscal Smith, she said. I simply put my case, he said. And that was when she made the great mistake, which none of us must ever make when someone says that. She said to her guest, your case is in your bedroom, Fiscal Smith. Do you want help with packing? <laughs> and there fell a silence as she stepped out upon the terrace with his cup of tea. Oh, dear. He stood there for half an hour. Dulcie came walking past him towards the wrought iron gates of her mansion in the village. Um, fully dressed now in tweed, skirt and cardigan, remarkably high heels for her age, and some sort of casual coat, not warm, from the cupboard under the stairs. She carried a prayer book, po-faced. Fiscal Smith shouted, where are you going? Phil's house is perfectly all right. I am going to church, said Dulcie. Dulcie? It is six o'clock in the morning, it is clouding over, it is beginning to rain, that coat you had in Hong Kong, and it isn't Sunday. And he came up close to her. I need to say my prayers, said Dulcie. 
it will be locked. I doubt it. The, gr the great Chloe is supposed to open it, but she usually forgets to shut and lock it the night before. You mean the mad woman who runs about with cakes? Yes, very well-meaning, but the mind's going. Sometimes she locks in the morning and unlocks at night. We shall have to tell the church warden soon. Actually, I think she may be the church warden. There's nothing much going on in the church. Not even anybody sleeping rough. It's too damp. He was padding along beside her. There you are, she said. Unlocked, unlocked all night. Inside the church scowled at them and blew a blast of damp breath. Hassocks looked ready to sprout moss and there was the hymn book smell. Do you know, I was reading this in America and I asked them if they had a hymn book smell in their church. They said, yes, we do. Um, notices curled on green bays gone ragged and the stained glass windows appeared to bulge inward from the flanking walls. Two sinister ropes dangled in the belfry tower. It was bitterly cold. Stay there, Dulcie ordered him, making for a chancel prayer desk up near the organ. I can't pray with anyone watching. Oh, the Muslims can, he said, trying to bring the blood back to his knobbed hands. This is a refrigerator, it's not a church. Muslims, she said, crowd together. They are allowed to crowd together on mats and swing about and keep their circulation going. And you don't see what the women do, but I don't think they pray like the men in a huddle. Anyway, I need what I know and she vanished eastwards. Five minutes, he shouted after her, as her high heels tapped out of sight. Utter madness, he said to the stained glass windows. Hopeless woman, hopeless village. His own voice echoed hopelessly around the rude screen and its sad saints. Rows of regimental flags drooped down the side aisle like shredding dishcloths, still as sleeping bats. They're all off their heads here, he called out. There was the sound of a heavy key being turned in the lock <laughs> of the south door just behind him, the door by which they had entered. He sprang toward it, flung himself first through the wire, then through the baize door to the south door they had just pushed heavily through. He tugged and he shouted but the door was now firmly and determinedly locked from the outside. Chloe on her bike had been thinking it was evening again. <laughs> Up in the chancel there was no sign of Dulcie, but at length he saw the top of her head and her praying hands. She was like a, what was it called, little Dutch thing, little painting on wood. Praying hands, he thought. They have them on Christmas cards. Dura. The Germans were perfectly all right then. <clears throat> her head was bowed, she still has thick curly hair. Five minutes, he called, like a tout or an invigilator. Soon he began to hum a tune from his seat in front of the choir stalls, and after a minute, she opened angry eyes. We're locked in, he said. Nonsense, she said. I heard the key thrust in and turned. It was Chloe. Dulcie went pattering back down the central aisle, tried the oak door first with one hand, then the other, then both hands together. She regarded the broad and ancient lock. You heard her? Chloe? Yes. Why didn't you shout? I think I did. Now leave all this, me leave all this to me, Dulcie. <clears throat> I banged and rattled and yelled. I'll do it again. Yes, yeah, she is getting deaf. They stood in icy shadow and he called again. Hello? It's no good shouting, Fiscal Smith. Nobody in the village is up yet, except Chloe. 
but he roared out, Hello there! There may be someone walking a dog. Nobody walks a dog as early as this in winter. We're all old here. I'm tired of this old, said Fiscal Smith. We don't have it in the north. <coughs> <laughs> Won't Susan be coming by on that horse? And where's that boy? Sleeping. And Susan won't be out for at least two hours. She may notice you are missing, but I don't think so. I suppose, he said, you don't carry such a thing as a <clears throat> mobile telephone. Good heavens, no, do you? Never. <laughs> well, we could try shouting louder, and so they did for a time, treble and bass, but there was no response. Of course, there are the bells, said Dulcie. <laughs> she was shaking now with cold. Might warm us up. Fiscal Smith released the tufted woolly bell ropes from their loops in the tower and handed one to her, icy to the touch. She closed her eyes and dragged at it with childish fists. It did not stir. I'll have a go, he said. And after a time, sulkily on the edge of outrage, the damp and matted bell pool began to move stiffly up and down. But Fiscal Smith looked exhausted. Go on, go on, said Dulcie. You got it up then, I think, and thought, oh! I believe I'd said something rather risky. <laughs> and she giggled. This is serious, Dulcie. Don't laugh. Go over there and pull the blue one. And so they toiled. And after what seemed to be ours, they both heard the sad boom of a bell. I think it was only the church clock striking seven, she said. <laughs> oh, we must go on trying. But she couldn't and made for the chancel again and possible candles on the altar for heat. He followed, but the candles looked like greasy ice, and all the little night lights, people light for memorials to the dead, were brown and dry, and there were no matches. Dulcie's lips were turning blue. This, she said, not crossly, will be the death of me. We have no warm clothing, and between us, we're nearly 200 years old. <laughs> My mother stayed in bed, you know, after the age of 80. There was nothing wrong with her, but everyone cherished her all the time. Through a door they found a vestry and a wall full of modern pine cupboards, bequeathed, said a plaque, by Elizabeth Feathers. I wish she'd bequeathed an electric fire, said Dulcie. Inside the cupboards were crammed full of choir boys, black woolen cassocks, and Fiscal Smith and Dulcie somehow scrambled into one each. <laughs> Dulcie said they were damp, but then over in the priest's vestry nearby there was treasure. Albs, cotters, chasubles, and a great golden embroidered coat beneath a linen cover. Wrap it round you, ordered Fiscal Smith. It's reserved for Easter, said Dulcie. <laughs> it's for the bishop, and it's far too big. It could go round us both. And so they both stood inside it, <laughs> their faces looking out from it alongside. My neck is still very cold, said Dulcie. Look. Look, there's the ceremonial mitre and the St. Aegu stole. This church, you know this church, it was once very high and very well endowed. I can't remember what high is. He said, I'm a Roman Catholic. <laughs> but I am in favor of high if it turns up the heat. Remember Hong Kong? No copes there. Too hot. Uh, uh, this is very curious headgear, Dulcie. We are becoming ridiculous. <laughs> I wish this was a monastery, she said. There'd be a supply of hoods. Well, that was because of the tonsures, he said. Oh, I'm not surprised, she said. I had terrible tonsils as a girl. <laughs> it was before penicillin, and I wasn't a monk. Wonderful penicillin. I'm lost, said Fiscal Smith. <laughs> you know, it was God's reward for us winning the war, penicillin. She's bats. 
Willie used to say that every nation that has ever achieved a great empire blazes up for a moment in its dying fire. Penicillin. I wouldn't have missed our finest hour, would you, Fiscal Smith? I bloody would, he said. <clears throat> then after a silence, look here, Dulcie, where do they keep the communion wine? <laughs> there came at length a loud knocking on the vestry door into the churchyard. Are you in there? An answer, please. Are you there? Who are you? A bell tolled. Yes, we are locked into the church, accidentally. Dulcie is not well, it is very cold. This is Sir Frederick Fiscal Smith speaking from the north. <clears throat> Have you tried to open the door? Of course we've tried the bloody door. I mean this door, the vestry door. It's beside you, there is an inside bolt. Fiscal Smith leaned from his princely garment. Consider the unobtrusive little modern door slid open a silken brass bolt and revealed the, mystery the misty morning. There, in running shorts among the graves, stood the family man of the village. Out through the doorway, laced across with trails of young ivy, a door which, like Christ's in Holman Hunt's Light of the World in St. Paul's Cathedral, only opened from within, stepped a pair of ancient Siamese twins <laughs> in cloth of gold one of them wearing a papal headdress <laughs> and both of them blue to the gills. <laughs> Away down past the churchyard at the foot of the steep step path sped old Chloe on her bicycle bearing on her handlebars a jam sponge and in her other hand the ancient church key. She called a greeting and waved. I just wondered if I'd remembered to unlock. <laughs> so glad I had. And she pressed on. In the village shop, she said, you know, I think there's something going on in the church. I think it's a pageant. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, now, Jane, you set yourself quite a challenge with this book because <clears throat> it's the third coming after Old Filth and The Man in the Wooden Hat. And the opening lines are, the titans were gone. Mm. And the titans are gone. So you've got mm. the two, the main characters yes. are dead. That's yes. your opening. Yes. And so you're writing a novel I, about dead people. Um, it rather looks as if the book's over on page two, I admit, because it's a, yet again a, a memorial service. Um, but a lot of people, it's what I say, there are a lot of people left and a lot of people that have been uh, rather pressed down by these great men. Though I think perhaps we're being rather unkind to them. They, they had the looks and they had the manner and they were very good lawyers. Um, I don't think they were unkind to anyone else particularly. They just didn't notice smaller people. But I, as I say, I, I, I did. I wanted to develop what went on around them. When you describe Fiscal Smith, as an, you describe him as an enigmatic scarecrow, the one born to be a background figure. Is that you saying that or is that... I think it's oh, me. Oh, Filth saying that. Well, I don't think Old Filth would have thought deeply about it at all. He probably actually. wouldn't even have seen yeah. him, uh, noticed oh, him. Oh, no. Well, no, he would have been, you know, someone who was always around. I don't think he would have uh, sort of reflected on his character very much. I was very interested to do so myself because of, in the early book, Fiscal Smith's father comes into it quite a bit, 
mysterious man walking along a beach and there is a little boy and it's the little boy that I was developing afterwards who becomes Fiscal Smith in then and I hoped if you read the three books you will see why he became as he was he was very withdrawn and uncertain little boy very hard working and of course in each of the books I've got this sort of walk on part of the 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 person that is in perhaps all the, the lives of almost everyone who becomes uh, successful if you like but able to manage life and that is the teacher the teacher that they had when they were uh, this man who's always known as sir um, and who really saved uh, the great man old filth because he had such a stammer he couldn't operate at all he couldn't speak um, and he also I imply well he certainly, uh, you have to read the second book, um, he certainly saved the day with the second child. A very eccentric, strange man, um, and based actually on someone who was called Sir, and it was Geoffrey Grigson's, the poet's headmaster, when he was a little boy in Devonshire. And I remember him, well, I worked for him for six weeks once, and I remember him telling me about this extraordinary schoolmaster. And I have a feeling that very often there is an extraordinary teacher in the background of most people. Mm. Mm. Now, picking up on this Titans Were Gone opening line, it struck me that actually you could read that in two ways, because it's also about the end of empire. It's, it could be a statement about where, they, mm. where we are mm. in that sense. Um, yes, indeed, it, it, it was, and it was deep felt, I think. Um, at the same time, they didn't talk about it very much, if you notice, it was a, an accepted thing, sad, um, a lot of loyalty gone to waste, and I remember so clearly myself, people coming home a great deal, uh, with not quite enough to do, and very much missing the uh, power and uh, confidence that they had and the life of course which was um, it was wonderful it was hard work and hard play and no chores which must have been lovely but perhaps not moral I don't know big subject they 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 timed the the end of Empire to 1997 when Hong Kong China took Hong Kong back which is, seemed very interesting to me because I don't. I always think of it mm. as having finished much before that. With, with India, yes. 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 Well, yes. It's all I had. All I had experience of, I think. Um, actually, the, uh, the handover was long after we came back, um, and I, I never lived in Hong Kong. I was. I just visited. I have no right really to talk about it at all. I don't think. But perhaps if I'd lived there, I would have got more turned in and, and not so able to see it from outside, I don't know. Why were you there? I, I married a lawyer who was neither Fiscal Smith, certainly not, <laughs> and he certainly wasn't old filth, and he certainly wasn't veneering. <laughs> he was but he was in construction law. Oh yes, absolutely, there's only one kind of law out there. <laughs> Sewers and drains, they call it. Marvellous branch of the law, I think. It's but they're, they're very well paid. But they're, they're very snooty about it in, the, in your books, in your novels. Oh, they were, yes, yes. Um, yes, uh, it wasn't the sort of smart end of the profession. 
And did you know people like Betty, who goes, you know, the expatriate wife oh, who goes yes. around collecting jade, doesn't she? Yes, yes I knew Betty. Mm. You yes. knew Betty? Yes, she was delightful. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. Um, well, she was married to, I suppose, the, uh, there's a man I got called Judge Willie, Pastry Willie, because his face was so pale. Um, now, they, they were people, in a sense, that I knew, but you know, they're never the really, they're never real people, the people you write about, but they were the images, uh, very beloved images, actually. They were very happily married and um, fun. Very good lawyer he was, and she was absolutely splendid uh, person, very funny. Uh, but of course I wasn't really, he, he was in the case, the long case we were there for, he was the presiding judge, and since my husband was on one side, uh, I wasn't really meant to speak to her in case I influenced her <laughs> to speak to her husband about sewers and drains that he was hearing about in the day, which was ridiculous. But, um, you could have taken opposite views um, of the sewer. Uh, well, we might, you see, yes. I mustn't, um, just as you haven't, you're not meant to play golf with the judge if you're on one side or the other. Oh yes, there are a lot of rules to learn. Mm. Um, in the paperback version of, of Filth, you have an introduction which says how you came up with the figure, the original figure. Would you talk about that a bit? I think it's such a lovely story and it sort of shows a bit how writers' imaginations start oh, working. Oh, yeah, when, yes, not the acronym. You don't no, 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 no. We all know what um, the act Does everyone know what the acronym Filth? Yes, everybody does. Fail, Nobody doesn't. Failed in London. Try Honkins, the most un unfair acronym in the world, but anyway, it became a, a friendly thing. Um, no, I actually um, was wandering along Piccadilly one day in the afternoon, uh, not thinking of anything much, and out of the Ritz there stepped a man, and he was handsome beyond belief. He was of an age. He was. Um, he carried, oh, he beautifully dressed, wonderful shoes, um, a very battered old briefcase, which is what lawyers don't like to uh, dispense with. They keep their briefcase by them that they've always had. I thought, oh, it's a lawyer, because I was married to one. And um, I looked at this man, and he drifted in front of me, right across the road and up the street with the horse on the end of it, you know, the um, uh, bronze horse and disappeared. And when I got home, I was very, very newly married and uh, David had no work at all at the bar. I mean, it was a very tough time. And I said, you know, I've seen the most extraordinary man. I think it was a ghost. He was wearing Edwardian clothes and I described him. And David said, was he wearing a hat? And I said, no, he wasn't wearing a hat. So then it wasn't a ghost because in those days he would have been wearing a hat, a bowler hat in London. So I thought about that and thought, I wonder where he is and who he was. And he'd never quite left me, actually. So that, uh, and uh, I knew I'd write about him sometime, and it has happened quite often to writers that the Baroness Auxi, the Scarlet Pimpernel, if anyone remembers the Scarlet Pimpernel, she was standing on a, a, a London underground station one day thinking of nothing, and you know the black hole, and often there's a blast of air before the train comes through. She was standing there, and the Scarlet Pimpernel walked out 
fully dressed in his glorious attire onto the line and off she went that was what she that was her hero after that don't ask me what it means i don't know but it's it's certainly um she she believed she had seen some sort of vision from the past and i thought i had too um the thing was mine wasn't quite from the past it was some sort of force that I felt needed to be recorded. A, a, a lovable force, I think. But nevertheless, it took Richard Ingrams phoning you up, demanding a short story from yes. you, for you to actually oh, conjure yes. this vision. Yes, back well, I think I would have been writing about it sometime, but Richard Ingrams, who is the editor of um, The Oldie, and I've known for years, and he's very nice, he said, we want a short story for Christmas. I said, but look, it's Christmas sort of tomorrow. It's any time. I, I haven't won. And he said, oh, come on, Jane, you can do it on your head. Now, it is wonderful to have a little encouragement. I can't tell you how that is, how, how very much I believe that. And so I said, well, I'll try. And I sat down and I wrote a story about two old lawyers living in Dorset. One had been the lover of the other's wife and... Um, and what are they to do? Do they speak? Do they not? And then there is Christmas and there is a, a coming together and friendship begins. So I wrote that off. He said, yes, that'll do. But I've never stopped since about those two men. <laughs> it's a very peculiar profession I'm in, actually. Fiction. Very, very difficult to explain. As if one is sometimes possessed, I think. Well, let's talk a bit about veneering, since he was supposedly, although he's one of the gone titans, he is the, the central character of this one, in a sense. He's meant to be, He's yes. meant to be, or he started out being. Yes. Um, yeah, to, he, he grew up in Teesside, we discover, and yes. his father was a Cossack acrobat. Yes. How likely was there to be a <laughs> Cossack acrobat? Not likely at all. And my um, editor said, do you really know enough about... Well, she didn't. It's not pompous like this. Do you know enough about relations between Russia and the, the 30s and would the Cossacks have really been dancing on Redcar Beach? And I said... So I then did a great deal of work on modern history and thought, no, they wouldn't really. Quite ridiculous. I didn't know what to do because I very much wanted this boy's... I wanted this boy's father to be as he was, which was an acrobat. Um, uh, and from a far country, and to a, who landed up having broken his back, being an acrobat in a very nor northeastern rough place where I was born, and I wanted him there, and I wanted them a wonderful wife who was a coal heaver and had a little boy who became, you know, and uh, I thought, well, I, I I don't want to change it, and I had. Does anyone know Margaret Drabble? Of course you do. Um, she and I were having lunch in Oxford, and I told her. She came from the northeast too. She lived in Filey. She's younger than me. Um, I said about my acrobat on Red Car Beach, and she said, I saw those Cossacks dancing at Filey. <laughs> Isn't that absolutely wonderful? Because she just said, yeah, of course, we went to see the Cossacks. 
And uh, of course, then I looked it up, and there were some Cossacks dancing about in a grey tent on the beach. Um, but uh, the, uh, God was on my side; that He presented me with the, the hero I wanted. <laughs> and, but he has a heroine mother, and Florrie Benson, his mother, is almost my favourite character of all. She's oh, she's very strong. Mm. She sort of—you have visions of her with her, mm. with sort of bare, a bulging That's arms, right. covered with soot because yes, she collects coal. she was a coal. A coal. Uh, there was such a woman. Yes, I knew. I knew her child as well at school. Um, she was a magnificent woman. Uh, it wasn't a little boy. Her child was called Georgina, a little girl. Um, uh, yes, she was. Uh, that was most. That was fiction. That that part was all fiction. But I, the image was there. Yes, there were such people. Mm -hmm. mm. And the the way that it's struck me that the, the relationship between the um, Cossack and Flory gives you an in on class, which is another big theme, because he's of mm. a higher class than her, but he's excluded because he can't speak the language. And he's, he's educated. He's, he's educated. educated. She's not educated at all. I don't know about class, but yes, I think so. I mean, he can discuss the wine when he's invited out to the local headmaster's uh, dinner parties, and she is never invited. This is very typical of that time, I think. Um, yes, it is about class, but it was about a recognition of, of strength in each other, two of, the, of that pair. Mm. And you'll never, mm. I, I wondered at first what, whether they actually had any relationship, and then you gradually begin to realise that they do. And one of the things oh, yes. that, one of the lovely mm. things in these novels is your ability to show people surprising themselves. People don't always know what they think. They are, do you know what I mean? The, the way people unfold in real time. Yes. Even to themselves. Yes. Yes, that's actually, actually true. We're wiser than we think very often, but we bury it deep. You mean? Yes. And it, but it keeps mm. coming up, doesn't it? It keeps coming up with, with, with Edward Feathers, with filth, and all, all your characters. They suddenly find themselves doing something they wouldn't have expected. Very, uh, yes. Um, I'm trying to think if Feathers does. No, Feathers is pretty old, cautious, old, I think. Isn't old he? filth. He a couple of and times so he, he when he's watching Betty planting the tulips, the, the way that he realizes how much he loves her, sort of. It's, it's, yes. It's, well, I think you're right. I think that I I don't I don't let on too much about his the depth of his passions and his love for her. It's the way he would have been. I think he would have kept it quietly to himself. I think she knew she was loved. My word, if she thought she wasn't, it would have been a dreadful life because she gave up an awful lot for him. But um, he would have been very uh, dignified about showing his feelings, I think. Mm. So reticence plays a really a big part in it. Do you have to deal with people who don't express their feelings? Yes. Mm. And that's a challenge. This is, is very, very so English novelist, really, you know, that you have to deal with people who do not express their feelings. That's what makes it so exciting to do. I uh, have to uh, uh, describe someone's inner self um, in very few words that don't look apt at all. Because we all, I don't know, we are a bit different now, I think. But I was certainly can. My, I was brought up among people who did not express their feelings very much. Some of them, some of them did. Um, and I was encouraged to keep quiet most of the time. 
And yet you manage to wring out of them this sort of almost what we heard in that extract, this sort of hilarious comedy. I They're hope very so. funny and very I hope so. Yes, I do hope so. But, uh, you know, laughter and tears, not far off. Just as Filth himself, uh, he didn't go to the uh, theatre very much or to the cinema because he wept too easily. And that was the surprise. You would not, I hope, or think, have expected him to weep easily, mm. but he did. Now, there's something going on with names in this book. You've got lots of really outlandish Dickensian names. Parable. Yeah. Um, um, Fondle. Yeah, that's a good name. <laughs> that's a good name. <laughs> so what, very what, nasty what's it, man, what is yeah. it with names? Well, they just, they, uh, they just present themselves to you. Fondle was the obvious name for that brute. Um, Explain fondle, just in case anybody doesn't well, know fondles, fondle. Well, the fondles... Oh dear, he was a headmaster. And his <laughs> wife, Mrs. Fondle, was dreadful. Um, but they were very, very snobbish and class-conscious and cowardly. And when... and awfully snobbish. They took their whole school to Canada uh, in the war to, and making sure they went themselves. Um, and of course they wanted to take their best pupils with them to start the school up again in Canada. And this is really what started the book up, just as much as ghosts walking out of the Ritz. It was that I became very interested in the tragedy of uh, the ship that went down with all the children, uh, evacuees to Canada, 1940. Um, killed a hundred, I was something just under a hundred of them, I think. So I put the fondles on board that ship and I drowned them. <laughs> Very satisfying. I, um, but uh, 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 Churchill actually stopped that awful evacuation of children. It was so dangerous. They were just, you know, sunk by, at once. It's a terrible thing to, to try. Some, there's one wonderful book about it. It's called, um, oh, I'll tell you in a minute. Um, <laughs> a very careful book. Someone's done a lot of research on what happened to the children who survived. There were quite a few. Very interesting what happened to them, actually. Um, Miracles on the Water, it's called, by a man called Nagorski. Um, some of those survivors actually, though I haven't said so, are in this book. The two old twins are ah. survivors too. There's still a few of those people alive. Uh, it's a terribly sad story. Anyway, we're better than get rid of people like the Fondles. But veneering... It's, it's, the veneering jumps ship. He jumps ship. It's, well, it's yeah. the beginning of his reinvention ah, of himself. Absolutely, yes. yes. So he, he escapes. Ship. He saves his life, yeah. Almost certainly. Mm. So you have a, there are a lot of coincidences. You're not frightened of putting slightly outrageous bits of plot no, in, are you? No, I mean, look at this Cossack and Maggie Drabble. There is no such thing as coincidence, I don't think. I don't quite know what I mean when I say it. <laughs> but again and again, I've seen the nature of coincidences being um, more than I can quite understand. 
And there's something going on with Dickens in this book as well. I want, you wrote Crusoe's Daughter, which I'm a bit obsessed with, as I indicated at the beginning. It dealt with Defoe, was sort of like a homage mm. in a way. I wondered to what extent mm. this is a homage to Dickens. You've got the chambers that um, Veneering ends yes. up in are very jarndice and jarndice, aren't they? And the clerk, oh, the legal clerk, yes, mouldering away. Oh, yes. You well, that was like that. It was like that after the war. There were chambers standing full of rubbish. And uh, in Lincoln's Inn, I remember my husband's chambers, he went down some steps. There was the most terrible sight of thousands of old cases of, you know, pink ribbon on sets of papers. And I remember the clerk saying, what am I to do with these? Is a sort of Dickensian, uh, totally Dickensian And uh, he concept. does actually make that... Veneering actually does um, think it's like a, it's like um, I think house, he does. He? Well, he's very uh, he's about to go and leave the bar and going to pay homage to Dickens, who is in Daughty Street just down the road, when he sees this extraordinary sign, which is very over the top. I agree with you, um, saying um, "Parable Apse and Apse," which is the name of his benefactor long ago. If you can get away with it, you try. <laughs> Makes for happiness now and then. Parable is quite, it's a bit like Magwitch, isn't he? I hadn't thought of it. It, no, just, I really it seems like no. this sort of mag, he, uh, uh, um, Ooh, a Magwitch. benefactor who says he only has 20, you know, leaves, he will mm. leave him 25 pounds. That's but actually, right. oh. there's, there's a much bigger fortune and he's a very. He's you, yes, I hadn't realised that. Yes. Mm. Am yes, I barking is. up the wrong tree? No, no, no. You're probably not at all. No. <laughs> It's the subconscious at work, yeah. No, I never thought of language. Um, so one last question before we open it out to the audience. Um, um, I wanted to ask you about the, the form that you write in, because you're, you take huge liberties with form, don't you? you you've, I mean, yeah. Some of it is written as a screenplay. Well, I think this is what we should do. I think the novel should be experimenting all the time. It's going to get moribund and boring, and we're just going to buy things that we we know already. And I, I think it's a, a releasing idea to have um, uh, patches of drama, um, all sort of reports from newspapers, stick them all together, make them into a shape, make, for goodness sake, don't leave it like a rag bag. But it makes it just much more interesting, not only to read, but to write, I can tell you. It's very nice suddenly to think I'll do the next bit as in dialogue. And I'm not the first who's done it, for goodness sake. It's just it has all got rather boring. <laughs> okay, I think it's time for you to start asking questions. So I've got a lady in the middle here and then one at the side. Do we have two mics or one? One. So do we, we go to the side there since you're closer and then we'll come over here next. Thanks. Um, your mention earlier of Cloth of Gold made me think of one of your first books, A Long Way from Verona, with mm -hmm. Jessica Vye when she's dressed in Cloth of Gold. Um, oh. That's such a fabulous story about a young girl growing up uh, during the war and who just knows she wants to be a writer. Um, I have to ask, is it autobiographical? It is a bit. So you are Jessica? Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what does Jessica do that, that uh, might be identifiable as you? you Jane? Me? Yes. Well, oh, she's hopeless. 
I mean, at school she's hopeless. She doesn't know where she is, what she's doing. She's very young for her age, I think. Um, it's wartime too, and she's, uh, you know, we were all launched into a different kind of thing straight away. Um, but she's, she holds firm to the fact that she wants to write, and this is so usual in someone who's going to be a writer that we just never lose it and don't. It's a very strange thing. I don't know what it's all about. I don't. I think a lot of writers would say we don't know. Who was it? Uh, Iris Murdoch said, we don't know what we're doing until it's finished, <laughs> really. Uh, no, that, that, um, that book was sort of a kind of love song to my home, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Jane, in the um, first two Old Filth uh, novels, great play is made of Betty Feather's rope of pearls looping through both stories. What happened to the pearls in this last novel? Oh, I didn't find them at all. Oh, yes. Yes, there they, they are. are. They're round oh. the neck of the uh, family man's wife at the memorial service. A magnificent string of Because he gave them, you see. He gave them to the boy. Actually, it's a rather funny story. <laughs> uh, he gave them to the boy, and the boy took them home and said, look what the man next door's given me. And they said, my God, must be a paedophile. <laughs> So the boys marched round and they look at poor old Phil with great suspicion. So you've given this string of pearls to my boy? Yes, they were my wife's. Given her by some old boyfriend, I think, he said. Wicked old man. Um, he said, no, he can have them. And so they are there, yes. But the, the first string of pearls, which is the more important one, I think, was the one that was given to old Phil on board ship when he was coming back from that terrible journey from, well, he was trying to get to Singapore, but they never got there, and they, the ship had to turn round. I knew two people who did do that awful journey as little boys, and um, people were dying on board or all around, and one old lady gave to the little boy who was going to be old filth this wonderful string of pearls that had been in her family and said, there you are, my dear, give them to your sweetheart when you grow up. So, yes, they're still there. Mm. Um, just following on, really, from that last question, um, I've just finished reading Last Friends, and it was really interesting filling in the sort of jigsaw pieces, and I'm really looking forward to going back and rereading the whole thing. Um, but I re was just rereading an article that was published when you um, wrote uh, The Man in the Wooden Hat, saying that you hadn't realised when you wrote Old Filth that it was going to be a trilogy. So how did you go about then sort of filling in the stories for the other two books? Well, I think uh, having finished one, um, I thought I wanted to talk about the another character, you know, switch focus. That's all. I mean, see how it looked like from through someone else's eyes, and then I did it the third time. But of course, it's endless. I'm not saying I did it well. Uh, in fact, I made some mistakes which I hope you haven't found. Oh, go on, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one very mysterious one I'd very much like some help with because someone tells me that there is a mysterious child called Frank in the early part of one of the... I can't find him. 
definite. Does anyone know Frank? <laughs> no. I'd be very pleased to hear if you did. But then there's another mistake. I gave Dulcie two lunches on one day. <laughs> and that's very serious. Anyway, I've managed to iron that one out and change it a bit. There was a, a funny one that I wanted to ask did you, you about, which I one? wanted. Yes, mm. I did. And, oh. But the, there was another one, which was the swallow, the school oh. teacher. When the school teacher stops the car with, uh, with um, yes, and you say swallow like a bell, and I, I was thinking, do are swallows like bells? Do they make a sound like a bell? A bellbird, the bellbird. Uh, like a bellbird. You said the swallow made a sound like a, be a, no, a bell, and I was wondering no, because he was, was no, the, uh, he was talking of his experience of birds in uh, in Australia. Oh, oh, it says a bell. It, it said a bell. Oh, and I well, thought, you see that? I, and I went and listened to some swallows. Oh. I thought, oh, I don't remember <laughs> swallows. And I thought, they sort of funny sort of bells you have in No in one's ever told me that. No, <laughs> no, I just hope they'll change it. Yeah, no. The bellbirds, wonderful sound in Australia. Wonderful, like little bells ringing. So how, mm. do you, how do you manage continuity? It's obviously a really big issue for a novelist, isn't it? Especially over three books, which is sort of what the question was getting at. It has left me with the most enormous respect for, well, Trollope. I mean, how on earth he kept all those people afloat together, remembering everything about them. He was a great genius, it seems to me. Just keeping tabs on my few I found very, very hard. Uh, no, he must have lived in his books, I think, all the time, going round on his horse. Wasn't he the one who was the postage stamps doing his... He must have been thinking all the time, now, where would so-and-so have been when, you know? Mad, really, but um, it's a way of understanding the world, maybe. Do you, do you have a system? Do you, do you do put yellow post-its up, like, like Will Self or...? or um... No. No, I'd get frightened if I saw that. I'd say, I can't do this. It'd be quite beyond me. I have found it very exhausting to live with all these people, actually. It sounds very silly, but it's also, I had a hard year in many ways, and uh, it saved me, too, having another world to step into. So, mm -hmm. mm. you got another question? Yes, gentlemen over there. I've just finished reading The Wooden Hat, having read Old Filth some time ago, and I think I'm right, I've read twice about Betty meeting Harry under the table. Oh, the seagull enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> Was that real? <laughs> That'll be in the next novel, won't it? Have you? <laughs> read twice? Well, I've, I've read that story twice, and I'm sure I've only read each book once. <laughs> really? But doesn't... <laughs> I can't think how, actually, but I shall look look into it but isn't that i mean part of what you do is you reprise in these novels don't you like and the it's always slightly different you see oh yes, yes. And, then, right. and then because it is always slightly different i mean meet up with an old friend and you both talk about the same incident that has never left you you know oh it was so funny and you find out that you have quite different memories of it this is what i mean the books these books 
many others better than mine, are about memory, which I think is perhaps one of the most interesting things we, we, we have. One, one right at the back, I think this probably the, oh, we've got two actually, if, we get, if they're quite quick we can get them both in. Yes, it occurred to me, just listening to what you were saying about memory, because I've read all three books and thoroughly enjoyed them, but felt that you were holding back on some information and I really wanted to know more, although I have read all three books, and I wonder if you did that deliberately. <laughs> hmm. Well, no, I do like a spare style, I have to say. I don't like overwriting, so yes, I've left a lot out, of course I have. It's intriguing for the reader. Um, well, you have to guess the right balance. You have to intrigue the reader rather than annoy the reader, having left too much out, I think. Also, the reader has to put an awful lot into the book, her or himself. Don't you think? Were there particular things that are left out that you want her, the Jane to explain for you? I suppose I felt that old Phil's. I can't you see know, you are. Where is she? Right up the back. Right. No, oh, I, I suppose I wanted to know a bit more about old Phil, about his feelings, but you've explained. It's the reticence, isn't it? It's the reticence which is part of him, and of course that is maddening, I agree. Yes, but I, I yes. hoped I had uh, suggested. Well, you did. They're thoroughly enjoyable. What is yes? I'm, I'm quite nosy, you know, and I like to. <laughs> well, yes, but you see, he was he was very ordered, wasn't he? And as he got, and he got that terrible job of um, editing Hudson on building contracts for the last ten years. I think it probably didn't do his imagination much good, but. Um, you'd have liked, uh, yes, I would have liked perhaps to have talked more about him. Um, maybe you could bring but you have to have a balance I think I had to balance his character with veneerings and, and one, one up there um, hello Jane um, one of the things that I've always loved about your writing has been uh, how you portray eccentricity and I'm wondering if you have in your own mind a clear idea of the boundary between madness and eccentricity. <laughs> I'm thinking particularly of your novel, The Queen of the Tambourines. Oh, yes. Yes, that was um, exactly what you say. It was an examination of madness. It's an examination of someone uh, who used to be called a nervous breakdown. She went to bits but she managed to get right through it by herself without, um, she drove people around her mad, but she, um, very strong, strong woman, I think, she managed to face these lies she was telling herself all the time. When you can do that, then you are on the way to sanity, it seems to me. Um, yes, that was a very painful book to write, and, um, I just can't bear to read it. It wasn't myself, but I can't bear to read it because I knew so many people like that at that time. Rich women with not enough to do and nowhere to go. Mm. Um, no. just, I'm going to just ask one very last question before we stop, which is 
is there going to be a fourth? I can't believe you're leaving these characters behind. Oh, yes. Is Isabel not going to come back and tell the story oh. of old filth? <laughs> I'd love to do that. I'm, I think I'm past it. I don't think I can do it. No, I'd love to. I'd love to. But I think they're on their own now. They could. Well, I think that we'd probably better just draw it to a close here. Why Absolutely. don't, the, if the right-hand side go out of that side and the left-hand side go out of that door, mm. then thank you very much. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.